Hello and welcome to a special episode of Zooming In on Hate, a podcast by the European Observatory of Online Hate. Over the next few weeks, we will be zooming in on the war in Ukraine, trying to unravel narratives, identify disinformation and find ways to help those affected. My name is Hannah Richter and today I'm chatting with Elsa Court, whose research focuses on the political and sociological transformation of post-2014 Ukraine. Her time spent working and volunteering in Ukraine gave her a glimpse into life there before the war broke out. In this episode, we will shed some light on the history between Ukraine and Russia and the divisions between the two countries so that we can better understand the current situation. Hi Elsa, thank you for joining us today. So to start, uh, can you speak a bit about the history between the two countries? Does Ukraine have a shared history with Russia or is this just a story that's being sold? Yeah, that's a really, uh, really good question. And you can look at it at a, yeah, quite a few different ways. Um, I'd say the sort of starting point of this this story um, is uh, the, the fact that Kiev was the capital of Kievan Rus, which was a sort of medieval kingdom uh, which existed from about the ninth century and uh, was the origin of what we would now consider the states of Ukraine and Russia. Um, it was also the birthplace of Orthodox Christianity and obviously in modern Ukraine, modern Russia, uh, that's a hugely important um, date and origin of, of a big part of their culture. Um, that happened in 988 and that date is kind of like how the British have 1066 as, you know, one of those dates in their origin stories, I would say. That we all remember from school. Yeah, that you, that you remember from school. So um, so that's hugely important. But at the same time, beyond that, how Ukrainians would view this is that it's a sh- there is a shared history, but it is definitely one that is not positive. It's a history of war and conflict, occupation, um, famine oppression, genocide, it's it's a colonial shared history is, is sort of an easier way to, to put it. Um, and this this story and this shared history is obviously viewed from Russia is as a far more positive uh, positive thing than from the Ukrainian side. And what they refer to as sort of um, a brotherly nations, uh, fraternal nations, um, Ukrainians would argue that actually it's more often a sort of abusive partnership than a than any kind of equal relationship. Um, so yeah, then obviously there's the, the Soviet Union and that shared history. Um, but again, most of for most of that history, Ukraine was uh, treated as sort of an unequal, unequal half in that relationship. Um, its own national identity was suppressed. Um, and in 1991, Ukraine voted in a referendum uh, overwhelmingly to be independent. Uh, it was about 92% of the population uh, voted for that, um, including uh, the population of uh, eastern Ukraine. Interesting. That's really great to hear such a good background. Well, not a good background. It's obviously not good. Um, but an overview of, of everything to, to understand a little bit more why at the moment things are so bad in Ukraine and why they're fighting so ferociously for their independence right now. Yeah, So, so yeah, continuing on from that, how did we get to this point, really, the more more recent things, I suppose? Yeah, so since independence, um, Ukraine has gone through a huge amount of transformation um, and also upheaval. 
Um, they've had two um, revolutions, once in 2004, which was called the Orange Revolution, and then later um, in 2013-14, the Revolution of Dignity, which is how it's known in Ukrainian, and more commonly in Western Europe, we call it the Euro Euromaidan Revolution. Um, Maidan just means square, because uh, it re refers to the independent square. Um, and it took place essentially because the the, the president at the time, who was a pro-Russian uh, president, essentially, he he refused to sign an association association agreement with the EU, which would bring closer ties predominantly in terms of trade uh, between Ukraine and Europe. The Orange Revolution was actually sparked by the fact the same uh, presidential candidate, uh, the same man, uh, essentially rigged the election. So, and he's also the uh, the man that Putin recently suggested could go back to Ukraine and rule. Uh, so if you want any insight onto how well that will go, uh, if that's ever ever comes to pass, a bit of an idea there. Um, but yeah, coming back to, to Euromaidan, that, that was essentially sparked uh, by this EU association agreement that the president refused to sign. Students came out onto the streets uh, to protest and were very brutally uh, yeah, suppressed by, by riot police. And this created a sort of snowball effect um, where all across Ukraine, but predominantly in Kyiv, um, people came out to demonstrate uh, for about 100 days and over 100 people were killed. I think everyone sort of remembers this time in the sort of early 2014 um, that then Crimea was annexed by Russia uh, in March. Um, and this actually went relatively smoothly. They didn't experience a huge amount of resistance from the Ukrainian army or the local population in Crimea. Um, and then obviously the conflict in Donbass also began, um, which did not go smoothly. Um, it is a predominantly uh, Russian-speaking region of Ukraine. It's extremely industrialized uh, and borders with Russia, as we know. Um, I think at the time there was a lot of confusion about how this was framed. Is it a civil war? Is it a separatist uprising? Is it a Russian invasion? I think looking back, you know, you can see how Russia really tried to frame this as something internal, as a sort of uh, internal civil war, when essentially it was um, a Russian-backed or even you could say Russian-led separatist movement uh, and that went on to kill, you know, prior to what's happening now, over 10,000 people. Wow. Well, I, I think that flows really well into talking about like a, the info war, which we're seeing a lot of talk about now, but it it kind of started with Crimea, didn't it? Or I mean, perhaps a bit earlier, but in the framing of, of how Russia framed um, the annexation of Crimea, what what really happened directly after that and, and with uh, the info war? Yeah, um, Crimea is a really interesting uh, case of, of how Russia uses uh, information, information space as much as sort of any kind of military or um, physical uh, yeah, attacks. Um, yeah, so after, after the annexation, um, first of all, it's, it's important to highlight that Russia did encounter a number of sort of logistical, practical problems, um, because as much as they 
like to claim that Crimea was Russian. Uh, Crimea isn't actually linked to Russia by land. It's a peninsula that is linked to um, to Ukraine. Um, and Putin spent billions of dollars um, on a bridge that managed to connect it to Russia. Um, wow. That took years to build. Uh, but because of this sort of like geographical position of, of Crimea, there's always been threats that Russia would try and take sort of link the Donbass region with this southern part of Ukraine that links Crimea, um, because that's where, for example, the water supply comes from, and Ukraine can just shut it off if they they like, and they have done. Um, but yeah, coming back for, to the info info war point, I mean, Crimea is extremely popular. The, the annexation of Crimea was extremely popular in Russia, in, domestically in Russia. Um, partly because of the sort of idea of what Crimea is in people's sort of mem- sort of collective memory. Um, it's a holiday de- destination. It's uh, it, it's almost more, more sort of this sort of dream nostalgia of what the nice parts of the Soviet Union were for normal people. It meant subsidized uh, holidays, cheap beaches, um, peace and uh, prosperity. Um, and the idea that they could get that back was, you know, they, they barely needed to do any propaganda about it uh, domestically. Um, and so that's sort of continuing today. I mean, in terms of the threat of Russian invasion, it's always been an idea in Ukraine that Russia would try and get the southern part of, of, of Ukraine to link Donbass and Crimea. Um, but what they've done at the moment in terms of how they legitimized uh, this domestically, because, you know, unlike just seizing a holiday destination, this is far less, this could be far less popular. They've actually presented it as not a war. You can't say the word war in Russia at the moment. Um, it's a special operation um, because they claim that Ukraine is, you know, committing crimes against humanity in Donbass. They're genociding Russian speakers and we have to go in and we have to liberate them and ensure that uh, Ukraine is, yeah, quote, demilitarized and denazified, which is a interesting thing to claim in a country where the president is Jewish. Um, but I mean, this this is also sort of tying into the to maybe what we'll go on to about how uh, the media landscape in, in Russia is so toxic and so incredibly you know, as an outsider, just insane to hear some of the things that that are being talked about um, because there is no independent media and because the sort of state media is almost in a sort of frenzy about Ukraine. <laughs> um, and you definitely saw that in 2014 after Crimea and Donbass, there were, you know, claims that Ukrainians had crucified children in Donbass and just really horrific things that weren't true. Um, and just seeing that, you know, once... Once again, sadly, I, I think everything that you're you're saying is it's so good to be able to actually understand it better and, and to have an overview of it, because a lot of the stuff I hadn't I didn't know. Um, I didn't know too much of and um, especially on the, the Russian side of, of things, because we talk about the information war that they are, that the Russian propaganda is portraying outside, but it's different to how it is inside their own country. So 
and because of that, do do you think that all Russians believe this story, this propaganda that they're that they're putting out there, and and those that do and don't? What what's the difference between those different people? Yeah, I think it's for a start. It's really actually hard to find reliable figures. I mean, especially in this kind of political environment, um, you know, there there are phone surveys particularly that are used in Russia where people will call people and say you know what do you think of this but obviously in the current situation people are unlikely to uh, to tell the truth or to want to answer or the people who do want to answer are incredibly pro-Putin um, but it does seem like you know there is considerable support within Russia for for this in the sense that what they see is happening is a special operation to ensure that people in Donbass are protected. Um, but I mean, there's also the case that after 20 years of, of, of Putinism, of, you know, constant propaganda, a hugely toxic media environment, the fact that independent journalists are either killed, you know, forced to leave or imprisoned, um, a lot of people believe it. And that's, that's also something that I think in the West, Western Europe, we have to sort of <laughs> realize that a lot of these people are, you know, I don't want to use the word sort of brainwashed, but that it's incredibly hard for us living in a free media society or a society that has that to understand how toxic uh, this this can be. On the one hand, I would say that there are definitely young, um, urban, maybe more internationally minded people, people who travel abroad or studied abroad. Uh, or work for international companies, maybe, who who know of independent news sources, though in the last few weeks those have been yeah banned. Um, but there's definitely a huge generation gap. I talked to a, a Russian at a, at a fundraising event for Ukraine recently who said, yeah, my, my parents are trying to leave. I live here in the Netherlands. Um, but our grandpa- my grandparents, you know, they're over six, 65, and they... They fully believe it, you know, and it's it's completely ripping families apart because those roughly under 60, uh, who, as I said, maybe are more younger, more urban, internationally minded, maybe know a little bit more of what's going on outside of the, the state media. But those over 60 um, older people uh, and also people in general who live, uh, I mean, Russia is a huge country and a lot of people don't live in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Um, have no idea and just believe, you know, what they're fed. Um, and it's also a, a society that actually watches television a lot. Um, this is something I found when I was doing my, my research at university. Um, it's it's really a television-watching country, which um, I don't know about you, but I don't watch a lot of television. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you go into a, a Russian home, also in Ukraine, that the television will be on in the court like the television is just something that is on in the kitchen and it might be on for five hours a day and if the only tv channels on television are state controlled uh that also has a huge impact uh so you can have things like twitter or facebook which is now banned yeah Yeah. (laughs) which is not banned um but ultimately a huge huge proportion of people get their information from television which is state-run um and if it sounds kind of Orwellian, it, it's because it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's what I say. I mean, I wouldn't say it's not without any hope, but I would be very, uh, I would be extremely optimistic about the power of sort of individual, ordinary Russians to 
be able to understand what is happening outside the what they've been told. Yeah, well, I mean, it must be so difficult because they, they can't get any other information and they would have to already know how to access that yeah, information exactly. to, yeah. to even begin to learn about it. And, and if that's not an, an option, and if they have grown up in that completely, then, you know, how, how are they going to manage? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that kind of, it, it makes sense, as, as upsetting as it might be. Um, you, you mentioned talking about, you know, um, internationally minded younger generation um so so what about those people from ukraine and russia who are currently living abroad abroad sorry can can you talk a bit about them and and maybe how they're dealing with everything back home if you have any idea yeah i mean i think um it's it's very different for ukrainians and for russians i mean for ukrainians there's there's no sort of pro-russian media in ukraine anymore i mean maybe five ten years ago now um i mean that there have been changes made um in the sort of media landscape since since 2014 but i mean now it's just there's there's no one to listen to it (laughs) um there would be maybe i mean this is also what's really what i find sort of strange in terms of the strategy of what russia is doing is that the places that have been hardest hit in terms of um, civilian casualties have been so far Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. Um, so even if you had people in those regions who maybe were more sympathetic or more, you know, didn't maybe felt more cl- closer to Russia, maybe emotionally, if you're going to bomb these people's houses, you know, that's you're not exactly going to to convince them that that's the right place to be. Um, but yeah, I mean. In terms of people being abroad, um, I think it's important to recognise that though we have uh, media freedom here and a really pluralistic media landscape and obviously full access to things like social media, uh, within sp- social media particularly there is a, a sort of echo chamber, a bubble. I mean, I know for myself that, you know, who I follow on, on Twitter are obviously all pro-Ukrainian, so mm-hmm. um, sometimes I you know, look for pages that are pro-Russian just to just to see what they're saying. Um, and, yeah, and just and just understand, OK, well, what are, what are they saying at the moment? And I think that's something that's important to do uh, in terms of realising that, you know, the algorithm will present to you the story you want to hear. Um, and it's the same for for Russians here that also if they've grown up in a society that does not have uh, media freedom in the same way that they will also be quite suspicious of um, Western media and what we consider to be, you know, something like the BBC as a sort of neutral, unbiased, uh, publicly funded, um, uh, yeah, broadcaster. They will. They might see it as well. It's 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 the state broadcaster. Therefore, they're only going to tell the state story or what what the British perspective is um, or the NOS with the Dutch perspective. Um, so yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, I know also that of of Russians living here who who have made contact with family, with friends back in Russia, and have said, "Please understand what is going on. We have to be against this or that," and have basically been told, "You're a traitor, and you don't know what it's like, and you lived in Europe too long, and all of that." Um, but no, I think I think for I think everyone has their own their own sort of 
well, what the algorithm will present to them in terms of social media um, and their own social network, which might be very, very different or might be very, you know, have a lot of solidarity. So I can't really speak in general terms, but that's sort of. Of course, of course, everyone, everyone is independent and individuals. Um, So using that that social media um, aspect and the information war, how has Russia used this information war to its advantage within Ukraine? Yeah, so you can look at this in a few few different ways. Um, as I said, looking at pro-Russian social media, what they essentially do is recycle what we see of you know images of bombings on Ukrainian apartment blocks in places as far away as you know Kiev or Western Ukraine. They then take those same images or uh, videos and say that this has happened in in Donbas, and you know these images have already been proven to have taken place in, in Kiev or in uh, in Kharkiv or somewhere like that um, and, and verified, but it doesn't matter. They'll just take any image and say, look, look what the Ukrainians are doing to Donbass. Donbass, meanwhile, is, you know, Donetsk, um, sorry, to be more specific, so the, the sort of main city in that region um, is has never experienced a sort of, uh, yeah, what what we're seeing in places like Mariupol, um, which is a uh, Ukrainian city of about 400,000 people, uh, right on the border of uh, the Donetsk, uh, um, yeah, what is called the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, but it's always, it's, it's Ukrainian controlled. Uh, and what is happening there, for example, is the same as what has happened in Syria when uh, uh, recently, I mean, the last few days, that there was a maternity hospital that was bombed, and there were some very powerful images that came out of, for example, pregnant women on stretchers. Um, and what happened was that someone found, you know, who this woman was. She was on her. She had an Instagram Instagram profile, and uh, a sort of claims started coming out from the Russian side of like, oh yeah, so she's a paid actor. She's just an Instagram influencer. This is just a movie set. You're making it up. Uh, it's all staged, um, which people pointed out happened, for example, with um, the white helmets in Syria. Uh, similar sort of things where it was they were, they were, it was claimed that they were paid actors. And to be honest, I'm not even sure if it matters whether belie- people believe them, because what it does is it frames you know a, a war crime. Suddenly, we're not talking about. The, the maternity hospital being bombed, we're talking about whether or not someone was an actor. <laughs> um, and so that's incredibly effective, I think, uh, um, form of, it's, yeah, it's, it's not even about whether people believe it as a form of disinformation. It's just distraction and noise and um, more, yeah, more sort of theories thrown in the air that actually have nothing to do with the the situation um yeah and as i said there isn't really pro pro russian media in ukraine at this point um i think the only sort of info info uh war thing that they've maybe managed to do is so um so a lot of distrust or maybe some rumors uh for example about whether the president zelensky has fled uh kiev he's still in kiev he's still working from his office there um, and that's also partly why he has been filming so much, you know, Instagram videos, uh, addresses, 
to really show people, look, I'm still here, I'm not leaving. Um, I think even today there was a, a deep fake of him saying, uh, you know, a, a deep fake of his face and video saying, uh, you know, everyone needs to surrender. And he immediately came out and said, this is a fake, please ignore it. You know, the only people I'm asking to surrender is the Russians. Don't believe this. Um, I would say that after, you know, eight years of, of Russian aggression, that Ukrainians are quite um, quite sharp on this sort of thing. Um, that, that they know that Russia uses this to their advantage and will, uh, yeah, will use every dirty trick in the book, essentially. Um, yeah, but... Who knows where it will go next? I mean, it'd be great if, if the rest of the world was able sharp, to, yeah. to do that as, as sharp and media literacy skills were up there, um, like like the rest of Ukraine then. But I suppose you, you have to be when you're bordering Russia. There's other countries yeah. like, like Finland as well. Finland's the same. They're really, really on top of their media literacy. Um, and, and I suppose one, one good thing that's come out of the, the information war and is that everybody it's not just Ukraine now that that is becoming as sharp um about Russian tactics and there's so many um open source intelligence researchers that yeah, are, yeah. are working on this at the moment um uh, I think I saw something about Zelensky um getting an army of of like 300,000 IT fighters yeah, yeah. um to to try and combat this and and to be checking every single video and, and photo that is coming out of of Ukraine or out of Russia now so and at least we have that side of things that that the information war on on the west is not being won by Russia unfortunately it's different inside their own country though yeah yeah for sure so finally how can we help yeah I mean it's um it's a very weird time in the sense that you are watching this sort of unfold in real time um, and yet there's very little that you as a sort of civilian sitting in Western Europe can do. But I think the point you just made about being um, sharp in terms of seeing information come in, I think that's a really, actually, that helps a huge amount in terms of, uh, you know, not sharing information unless you know that it comes from a reputable source. Um, and also, I think, uh, in general, listening to Ukrainians, Ukrainian voices, Ukrainian perspectives on, uh, for example, history, uh, culture. Um, I think one of the main info, yeah, info war tactics that Russia is is using at the moment is saying is trying to push the message that Ukraine is not a separate country, is that it's not a real country, um, that it's made up, um, and therefore we have the right to come in and and take over um so actually sort of educating yourself on that aspect i think already is something that um yeah that that can actually do a huge amount in terms of forming public opinion um yeah if you know ukrainian people uh reach out ask them if there's anything you can do uh to help um and yeah i mean it, there's there's all sorts of small things I think I mean I've also read you know how do you how do you talk to I have a lot of Ukrainian friends and you know how do you how do you talk to them in these sorts of times and I read some advice that said you know don't don't say I hope you're doing well for example because they're probably not 
um, instead say, I'm thinking of you, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do at all. Um, you know, go to, go to protests. I think protests at the moment are not so much happening with the hope that a protest can change, you know, a protest in the Netherlands or in the UK or, or in Europe can change anything, but it's more to show that, um, to the, to the Ukrainian population, like we see what is happening and we do not accept it. And, mm. uh, we're here in solidarity, um, and there are a lot of you know local organizations that are accepting aid, driving to the border. Um, you know, so I think there are a lot of smaller and bigger ways in which you can help: donating time, donating money um, to these things, and also donating expertise or you know just checking checking a source before you share it. Um, yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the simplest one, isn't it? Check check your source before you share it, which people really need to do more of. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Elsa. It has been really, really insightful. I've learned so much. I hope our audience has too. Join us again in just over a week for our regularly scheduled webinar in which we will continue to talk about the war in Ukraine. We will be joined by Emily Duffy and Rafael Pankowski to chat about reframing narratives and the impact of the war on Poland. You can join this recording live by signing up on our website at www.eooh.eu. Thank you. And once again, Elsa, thank you so, so much. Thanks a lot, Hannah.